Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 99, Mark Spotswood, Proof Discontinuities and Civil Settlements. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. On the show today is Mark Spotswood, an associate professor at the Florida State University College of Law. Now, Mark, of course, is a returning guest to Excited Utterance, but this interview was my first opportunity to converse with Mark on air. Our conversation centered around his new article, which is entitled Proof Discontinuities and Civil Settlements. Now, this article is something of a follow-on piece to a paper that Mark previously discussed with Ed in a prior Excited Utterance interview. In that earlier interview, Ed and Mark's conversation kind of centered around the impact that three different burdens of proof might have at the trial stage of adjudication. Mark's new paper, though, looks at a different point of adjudication, and that is the settlement context. How might three different burdens of proof affect settlement negotiations? As ever, Mark is one of the most careful, incisive, and really deliberate thinkers in the evidence space today, and I trust you'll enjoy my conversation with him. Mark, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. So our listeners, I think, will of course remember that you were recently on the show talking about the impact that three different burdens of proof might have at the trial stage of adjudication. It was a fascinating conversation that you had with Ed. I encourage all of our listeners to go read that paper and listen to that conversation if you haven't already. In this new paper, though, you note that that earlier article, and really kind of the the burden of proof literature generally, only tangentially considers an issue that's kind of adjacent to this same topic. So what's the focus of the new piece? In general, the burden of proof literature and honestly, the evidence literature as a whole spends a lot of time answering a question I find fascinating, right? Which is how do you design the trial process to keep your error rate low, to have accurate outcomes, maybe to serve other values? And typically, and I'm super guilty of this myself, so it's not playing a blame game. We all tend to write papers that focus on if we get trials right, and we like the outcomes we're getting at trial, everything's great. The problem, of course, is that trials are not the main way the litigation system produces outcomes. Settlements are actually the modal outcome of filing a case. Sometimes we have other pretrial dispositions. Occasionally we take a case to trial. But the most common way that civil litigation does whatever we want it to do, compensates someone, deters misconduct, is through the mechanism of encouraging the parties to reach a settlement decision. In the previous piece, I gestured at some impacts that changing burden of proof rules might have on settlement behavior, but I knew it was too complicated a topic to tackle in the space I could give it there. So this is really, for me, just a first step towards analyzing how different trial burden of proof rules might alter parties' incentive to settle cases, either the decision to settle or not settle, or the kinds of settlements that they reach. So I want to follow up on a point you just mentioned with the different burden of proof rules. Our listeners are likely going to remember some of the details of the three different burden rules that you introduced during your last interview. 
But because those are so important for this piece, remind us, if you would, of the broad contours of those different burdens. Absolutely. So we're all very used to the conventional or traditional approach to burdens of proof. It's what we would call in math a step function. Right? You assign zero liability if the fact finder is 10% confident, 30% confident, or 50% confident. Then once they're 51% confident that the defendant uh, committed acts that subject them to liability, we flip a switch, and now we assign all of the damages they find that a plaintiff has suffered. So I often refer to this as the light switch model of proof. Right, You either get nothing or you get everything. I talk in the previous paper about uh, what I label continuous burdens of proof that just in some way smoothly escalate the amount of a sanction, the amount of compensation in response to increases in juries' assessment of how likely they think it is that the defendant committed the charged act. So instead of a light switch, now we have a dimmer switch at 10%. And we could do this linearly. So that's the way it's often been analyzed in the past. If we have 10% confidence lie in liability, you get 10% of the damages, 90% you get 90% of the damages. And what I explored in the previous paper is we don't have, to, just because we've chosen to do a continuous burden doesn't mean we have to do a linear one. And in fact, other mathematical function forms have some attractive features. So I explored using what's called a logistic curve which is essentially a sort of flattened S-shape. Uh, you could call it a smooth step function. But basically, it steers a middle course in between the one-to-one -one ratio of a linear burden or the all-or-nothing of a conventional burden, pushing you closer to no damages or full damages as you get closer to those confidence levels, but in the middle, smoothly escalating so that at 50% confidence in liability, you still get 50% of the damages. And pivoting now to your current paper, how do you utilize those burdens in this article? You know, generally speaking, what's the aim of this follow-on project? Yeah, so the goal was simply to look at what happens if we're using these three different burdens at trial in terms of the expected impacts we should get on parties' decisions to settle cases. And this was motivated by a really famous paper in the evidence literature David Kay showed in the early 80s. We generally, from a decision theory perspective, think we should get higher expected errors under a linear burden of proof rule than under the traditional all or nothing rule. The reality, though, is since we settle so many more cases than we try, even small changes to the error rates and settlement outcomes or small shifts in choosing to settle cases versus try them could swamp those effects. So I got very interested in this question, how do using the burdens at trial change the quantity of settlements, the settlement rate, and also the quality of settlements, the amount the case settles for in relation to what would happen in a perfect world where we had a black box that could just reveal the true outcome in each case. So I want to get technical for a second to talk about your study's methodology. Under either any of these burden rules, how are you modeling the relationship between jury confidence forecasts on one hand and the decision to settle a case on the other? Right. So the paper is motivated by a central insight, which is in the traditional burden of proof rule we're all used to, your expected probability of winning ex ante 
hinges not just on what do you think is the most likely level of jury confidence level and liability. So you say before trial, I think the jury is most likely to say there's a 75% chance the plaintiff is right. Knowing that number does not tell you your probability of winning. You need to know the confidence you have in your forecast. If you have an extremely precise forecast, right, you say it's almost certainly between 70 and 80%, you're essentially certain of winning. Even though the jury won't be certain that the defendant should be liable, just because you have a very precise forecast of their assessment. If instead it's very uncertain, you might have a much lower probability of success. So when we're looking at the traditional rules, we have to model them using not just a predicted confidence level the jury will have in liability, but actually a distribution of possibilities we expect. And I use beta distributions for the mathy folks in the audience, which very neatly model uncertain forecasts of probabilities that range between zero and one. The linear burden, by contrast, only depends on the specific predicted probability, the mean predicted probability, regardless of the precision level. So in analyzing what settlements we expect, it's this difference that matters a lot. The reason for that is that if we use a traditional economic model of why parties settle cases, the Posner-Landis-Gould framework for this, what we say is, in general, parties will settle when it's a rational decision that they can get a result through the settlement that's better than what they could get at trial. The plaintiff wants to get more than she'd expect to get by trying the case. The defendant wants to pay less than they would expect to pay by trying the case. Of course, what they stand to gain or lose is driven not just by their expected outcome at trial, their probability of success times what they will either get or pay, but also the costs of taking the case to trial. We might have cases where the plaintiff's minimal acceptable demand is more than the defendant would be willing to pay. In those cases, there's no settlement range, so that case has to get taken to trial. We might have cases where the plaintiff's minimum is higher than the defendant's maximum. We then get a range of possible settlements, and which particular settlement we get depends on the party's bargaining power and ability, which is randomly varied in my model to sort of track realistic assumptions. And the other key thing you have to understand in all of this is if the parties have equivalent forecasts, the same predicted mean and the same confidence level around it, then the forecasts, they're basically going to settle every case. But if instead the parties have divergent forecasts, sometimes it will make sense to take the case to trial. And a classic way to frame this is in terms of optimism bias. So I also model varying amounts for each party of optimistic enthusiasm about their chances of success on the merits, so that if you have an unbiased prediction would be the jury is going to be 75% confident in liability, the plaintiff might think 85%, the defendant might think 65 Or in another case, the plaintiff might think it's 99 and the defendant might think it's 10 There's varying sizes of bias for each case. So that's the basic model. We compute based on those beta distributions what the expected trial outcome should be for each party based on their optimistically biased prediction of the outcome, and then look to see, will they settle the case, and if so, for how much. Perfect. So now that we have the contours of your model down, I want to turn to what you just mentioned, your simulation. So run us through your study design with this model as background. 
I already mentioned the key mechanism here is the more the parties' predictions diverge, the more likely a trial is. If their parties have very similar predictions, the more likely a settlement is. The thing I learned very early on looking into this is choosing between these rules doesn't uniformly increase the divergence or decrease it, right? Neither rule always makes the range bigger or smaller in terms of their expectations. Instead, it varies situationally. And that's what motivated me to use a data simulation design so that if I simulate reasonable ranges of confidence levels, amounts in controversy, litigation costs, we can see what would be likely to happen over overall system. And then by digging into the data a little bit, we could try to identify cases in which one rule or the other is better. So if you look at the behavior in the simulation, one of the important things we see is the traditional rule, the all or nothing rule, tends to take forecasts and what I call extremize them. It pulls them closer to zero or one, farther away from 0.5, as compared with the mean predicted confidence level and liability. So if an unbiased person would say, the jury's likely to think this is a 60% probable case for the plaintiff. The way the math will work is the probability of the plaintiff succeeding in an all or nothing regime is always going to be greater than 60%. If the unbiased person would say it's 40%, the all or nothing probability of winning will always be less than that. And for forecasts that straddle that middle point of 0.5 based on the party's optimism, that pulls them apart it increases the likelihood of the case going to trial. In other cases, it will pull them together. So that's why the data simulation is so critical. The short version of all of this is I generated a million fake cases, but I spent a lot of time digging into court system data to make all of the figures for them as realistic as I could for typical damages amounts, typical litigation costs the amount of relationship, the correlation between litigation costs and the amounts of controversy, the party's probabilities of success. And then I just looked at what happens with the settlement behavior. It's an absolutely fascinating setup, and I'm excited now that we get to talk about results as well. So what did your simulations reveal? Does a continuous or a linear burden of proof increase settlement rates? The headline result there is yes a linear burden of proof appears to bump the overall settlement rate in a typical litigation system up by a modest amount. I designed mine to track some previous studies of settlement frequency under the traditional rule that see about 60% settlements. I varied the parameters around to make sure it wasn't just very particular parameters that drove this. I tended to see a consistent pattern of we get a small bump by moving to the linear rule I had 61% overall settlement rates in the version of the study that I went with for publication. The linear rule bumped that up to 65%. And by the way, I do just want to plug here all of the code I used, all of the assumptions I used, I did make public so that this can be reproduced or people can vary with the varying parameters for themselves. I wanted to make those, the way the assumptions relate to the results really transparent. So in the paper's appendix, there's a link to where you can get all the code and try this for yourself. Your paper also suggests that a linear burden of proof is especially advantageous in what you call moderate or hard cases. So why is that? Right, I would actually go a little further. I would say its advantage in generating settlements is confined 
to what we'd call moderate to hard cases. And what I mean by that more technically is the unbiased observer would say, after trial, the jury is going to think this is somewhere between 20% likely liability and 80% likely. So that could include very close cases, you know, very near 0.5. It could include cases somewhere in the middle. It excludes the cases that we would call very easy. Remember, the central mechanism is the traditional rule pulling us towards the extremes for predicted outcomes. Since most cases, the amount of optimism that we have will cause the forecast to straddle the middle in these ranges. That means we typically see more settlements because we have less divergent predictions if we move to the linear rule. If we look at those easy cases, the pattern reverses. The traditional rule takes a case that's one party says 85% likely, the other party says 95% likely. And since both of those are very unlikely to be so wrong that it's actually 40%, we'd get a dichotomous probability of victory of like 99% for both of them. So I want to be really clear. If you have a system filled with really easy cases with almost no hard cases in it, the traditional rule is actually better on the metric of producing settlements. So you see an advantage for the linear rule in the middle at the extremes. It's the traditional rule. But since we have more cases in the middle, that's why you see a modest improvement overall by moving to the linear rule. So in addition to case difficulty, I'm also kind of interested in case size, if you will. So does the linear burden's advantage in encouraging settlements hold regardless of case size? No, it doesn't. And this was actually a finding that really surprised me. I saw this when I was digging through the data, and I had to spend a lot of time figuring out why this was the case. When I presented this at a conference in Tel Aviv, this was the thing where the economists were scratching their heads and saying, well, wait a minute, why is this happening? So I spent a lot of time trying to explore what's going on here. As we get very big cases, we actually find out that the traditional rule also in that domain has an advantage in settling cases. And the key thing to understand here is litigation costs in relation to the amount in controversy is a key driver of whether the party's expected outcomes will diverge enough that they'll take the case to trial rather than settle it. Without getting deep into the math, cases that have large amounts in controversy relative to litigation costs, in general, a lot more parties are going to take the gamble on a trial. And since litigation costs tend to be bigger for bigger cases, but it's a weak correlation, it's not super strong, on average, large cases have much bigger damages than the amount it takes to try the case. So what happens if you're suing for $10 million, the defendant offers you $5 million, and let's say you expect it's going to cost $100,000 to take the case to trial. That's a pretty expensive trial. Well, you should still be willing to incur that trial cost if you predict a victory probability that's just 1% greater than the defendant's. So the only way you see settlements in the largest cases is when the parties basically have almost identical expected outcomes at trial. And it's only in cases that are pretty easy and then get pulled up to both parties think it's 99% certain they're going to win because of the extremizing tendency of the traditional rule. That's the only time you see, or the main time you see, settlements in those really big cases using this traditional economic model. What about settlement size, Mark? 
So do the different burden rules not only affect whether the parties will reach a settlement, but also the size of that settlement if it is reached? They do. So looking over all of the simulated data, settlements were about 10% smaller on average using the linear rule. So we get more settlements, but we get smaller settlements on average. Once again, I want to communicate data clearly. Means can be misleading, right? We ultimately care not just about what happens on average or for everything, but about the different patterns that we see. In cases with small or medium-sized expected litigation costs, the predicted settlements were pretty much identical across both rules. The difference in average settlements was really driven by cases with very high expected litigation costs. In those cases, we get a really big bargaining range. Essentially, the parties are playing chicken. The plaintiff has a negative expected value in proceeding. Their expectation at trial is swamped by how much it will cost to get through the trial. The defendants, subject to the same high costs, they're going to pay if the case is tried and they lose many times more than just the damages. And so in this huge bargaining range, an interesting thing happens. Plaintiffs can voluntarily dismiss their own cases at any time. They can walk away, and that bounds the theoretic smallest settlement, not at the plaintiff's actual expected value of proceeding, but at zero. The defendants don't have the same mechanism. They can't just decide to walk away and force the plaintiff to take a particular amount. So what would happen in real life might depend on different mechanisms to try to protect defendants in these circumstances. But in the simple model, the high cost cases can end up having settlements that exceed the amount of controversy. There's a small number of these where it's mainly in the very high cost cases, but they drive the average up. And the reason that the traditional rule ends up giving us higher settlements overall isn't because it's giving us fairer settlements on the typical case. It's because in these crazy cases, it produces a wider divergence, meaning a wider bargaining range. So we're actually seeing a small percentage of cases where the traditional rule gives us an even crazier high settlement that's way above what the expected value of the case is for either party's estimation. So it does raise the average, but we should be careful. It's not for all cases. It's for a subset of cases that's driving that change in the average. All right. So pulling back for a second, Mark, how do your findings inform the kind of ongoing normative debate about the desirability of settling cases versus letting cases go to trial? And what do I mean by that? Could the implementation of different burden rules help advance either of those normative positions? So it's a, a very interesting and a very important question. When we see this small percentage of cases with huge settlements, those are cases where the settlement is very erroneous relative to the true merits of the case. We might have an initial impulse to say, well, we should avoid settlements in those cases because the settlement amount is so crazy. We have to then remind ourselves the defendant who's offering the settlement is rationally saying this is a better deal than bearing those extreme trial costs. Trials would cost them even more. So protecting parties' interests by lowering the settlement error rate wouldn't necessarily make us want to avoid an increase in settlements. This is something that is benefiting the parties from their private perspective. We might want to look for reforms that give defendants better outs in those subset of cases. But there are other concerns about high settlement rates that can't be either gotten rid of just with those kind of minor reforms or 
we'd say, oh, if the parties rationally choose this, why should we complain? There's been a lot written about the danger of too many settlements incorporating confidentiality clauses, working to hide wrongdoing that's ongoing, that's going to harm other people. There's been also concerns expressed that every time you settle a case, you don't get a decision on the merits from a court. That might help develop the law, make it clearer to parties what kind of conduct is lawful or not lawful. And there can be externalities from parties making decisions to settle cases. And lots of people lament the vanishing trial. We try fewer cases than we used to. Now, we should be careful. Not just settlements are to blame for that. A big part of the change has been the rise in other pretrial dispositions like summary judgment. But more settlements does mean fewer trials. That's inescapable. So when we're choosing a burden that affects the quantity of settlements, we also face a tricky question. Maybe we get more settlements. Maybe we could even make them more accurate. But are those externalities worth it? if we're further reducing our rate of trying cases and bearing these other kinds of costs. I'm currently agnostic. I don't think I've been sold either way on this, but I wanted to explore issues relating to that might motivate people who have a concern about too many settlements. So I'm also curious here, since you've demonstrated today that both the continuous and discontinuous burdens have their advantages, at least at discrete points, is it possible or is there some way that you could perhaps split the baby? And what I mean by that is could some sort of hybrid model or even an independent model more fully capture the optimal outcome that we're pursuing? Right. So again, the optimal outcome might vary for different listeners and different theorists. I don't want to preach to anyone that I've figured out what the right rate of settlement is. But given that I know that many people are concerned about an excessively high rate of settlement, one other result in the paper that's interesting, this logistic burden I talked about at the beginning that sort of splits the difference between the other two approaches and has a lot of other attractive features I've written about in the past, it does something that was surprising to me when I first ran the simulations. It behaves almost identically to the traditional burden of proof rule in terms of the settlement incentives it creates. It doesn't split the difference. Even with a million cases, most of the differences I saw between a logistic burden of proof or the all or nothing step function just appear to be merely random noise. They weren't statistically significant. So if you like the idea of a continuous burden of proof at trial for other reasons, but you want to prevent any further decline in the trial rate, the logistic burden is your new best friend. Even if it sounds a little bit intimidating to figure out what it is, it might be worth your time to check it out because it lets us, to some extent, have the cake of many benefits at trial and eat it too in the sense of not paying any penalty, if you think of it as a penalty, by increasing settlement rates. Last question, Mark. What's next for the literature here? What type of additional paper might shed some additional insight on this issue? I love that you always ask this question on the show, and I think there's tons of room for people with an interest in doing this kind of modeling or simulation work to extend these results. Maybe they'll solidify them. Maybe they'll find out that I'm wrong once you incorporate more real-world complexities. This was a first step, and this is, is a complicated world out there. So one thing I wish I could have done, but it was just too complicated to tackle here, incorporate other pretrial dispositions into the simulation. What happens, especially if we add in summary judgments, right? Summary judgment might be cheaper than going to trial. That's the theory of it anyway. I'm not sure how often that bears out in practice. 
I was hobbled here, honestly, by I was trying to just descriptively compare existing burdens that people have talked about. No one has really analyzed what would summary judgment look like in a world where we had continuous trial burdens. I'd have to do normative work to sort of invent a new kind of summary judgment and then analyze it. And I would like to see that normative work. And I would love to see the model of what happens once you use whatever that cool new procedure is. There's other more mundane things. I didn't consider filing effects. How does changing the trial burden impact which claims get filed? I stuck with a static universe. Here's our cases. Here's how processing them changes. But there might be filing effects from the shift. A really interesting move that would require extraordinary sophistication on the part of an analyst is make the costs endogenous. Parties might take more or less discovery based on changes in these rules. They might alter their level of investment in trial advocacy based on changes in their expected outcome value. That could shift results around in these models. I'm not sure how much of a difference it would make, but I'd love to see someone explore it. Richer behavioral assumptions. What if we say parties are risk averse? What if we adopt some behavioral economics prospect theory, something like that, and say people are especially averse to risks of large losses? That could enrich this and maybe make it more realistic possibly, I don't know. And then another thing that's really on my mind is what would happen if you modeled resource constraints. We see uh, in small cases, these big errors where the defendant basically has low bargaining power, low bargaining ability, pays more than the case is worth because going to trial would be even worse for them. In the real world, defendants are not always great big corporations, right? Lots of people are debt defendants, are landlord tenant defendants. They are constrained by their ability to pay. And that might have the salutary effect from the court system's perspective of capping their payments a bit, capping the errors. To do that well, you'd have to realistically describe variations in ability to pay across defendants and how it relates to the other variables. It would be a big challenge, but a very worthwhile challenge. You pull all of that stuff together, you could take a stab at answering the really big important question here, which burden of proof rule is likely to maximize systemic accuracy or efficiency? And I hope describing this has conveyed to readers, both uh, listeners, how interesting I find that project and just how hard it is to analyze once you start thinking about uh, the upstream effects in pretrial that rules at trial can have. Well, Mark, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure and thanks for having me. One of really many aspects that I appreciate about Mark's paper is his willingness to recognize this fallacy that seems to be running through the burden of proof literature. And that fallacy is the assumption that civil disputes will terminate at trial rather than in the settlement context. Now, as Mark rightly notes in his paper, quote, the vast majority of our cases end either in settlement or in various pretrial dispositions, such as summary judgments or voluntary dismissals. And given that reality, I think Mark is eminently correct in analyzing how his three different burden of proof frameworks might affect settlement negotiations. And I think stepping back for a second and zooming out, that that move, that analytical step that Mark takes to examine how his framework works in the settlement context is a move that we would all be well served to consider in our own work. I think as evidence scholars, 
we just naturally gravitate to the trial context when we think about the application of evidentiary rules. When we think about hearsay, when we think about character evidence, when we think about Rule 403, at least what I'm imagining is a dispute in the heat of battle at trial where a judge is making an admissibility determination. But far more often than that context is a context in which parties gathered around the negotiating table considering settlements are looking at the rules of evidence and estimating what will be admissible, what will not be admissible, and that estimation in turn affects their willingness to accept certain propositions during settlement negotiations. And I think that aspect or that environment is somewhat underexplored in the literature. Now, of course, we've all heard about plea bargaining in the shadow of trial. We've all heard about how trial penalties might affect criminal defendants in terms of their willingness to accept a plea deal. But I think what's missing is a robust discussion about how our evidentiary regime structures settlement negotiations. Are we making our rules sufficiently transparent, sufficiently clear, such that parties can readily predict what evidence is admissible, what evidence is inadmissible, and those settlement negotiations can proceed as efficiently as possible? And I think as evidence professors, we're tempted to say, sure, the rules of evidence, they're not all that hard. They're easy to, to, to master, and therefore we're meeting that normative ideal. But for the average litigant, is that truly the case? Or is there going to be some ambiguity about the admissibility of certain pieces of evidence that is going to introduce this new unknown during settlement negotiations? I, of course, don't have the answer as I kind of ponder this um, in the moment. But I think more than anything, what I appreciate is Mark's ability to tee up that conversation by shifting the focus from trial to the settlement context. He encourages us not only to think about how the burdens of proof affect settlement negotiations, but also how our evidentiary regime as a whole facilitates or perhaps even inhibits a system that is dominated by pre-trial resolution of disputes. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The producer is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host today, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. And I do hope that you will join us next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof. Mm -hmm.